It is December 2019 and the haze hangs low around the Betwa River in Bundelkhand, close to the Uttar Pradesh-Madhya Pradesh border. Asma Chaudhaya, a young ornithologist, is spending a fortnight here as part of her research. Asma loves birds. She's been eyeing birds right from her teenage years, ever since her environmentally conscious father got her a pair of binoculars. On any given day, nothing puts her mind at ease more than sketching the birds that she has spotted. But this area around the Betwa is it known to be a birder's paradise. There are barely any scientists who venture out to these parts. But Asma knows that a keen eye and patience can reveal the secret hiding places of the enigmatic bird species. And she's right. In the midst of wheat and chana fields, she hears a distinctive cooing. It's as if a couple of chords of a trumpet are being played. It's a moment that's easily missed by non-birders, but Asma is intrigued. When she hears the cooing a couple of more times, she pushes her way through a bush into a small agricultural pond. Right in the middle of that pond, there are a couple of tall grey birds. They have a greenish-grey bill, a red head as if they're wearing a mask and bright orange-red irises. These are the legendary Indian Saras cranes. As far as Asma knew, the birding community had not reported the presence of the Saras in that region in Bundelkhand. Villagers tell her that once upon a time there were many of these birds in the area but they're getting rarer and rarer. Peaked by Asma and the fact that she had travelled so far to see birds, the villagers then take her to other areas in the village. By the end of her trip that day, Asma had spotted a rosy starling. A beautiful tiny bird with a distinctive black wispy crest that has made its way to this village from the steppes in Central Asia. She's also spotted painted stalks and grey and white wagtails. It was a rewarding day. But her job wasn't done. As she was leaving, Asma pulled out her phone and opened the eBird app. This app has become a treasure trove of information for birders like her. As she suspected, there had been no recording of the Saras in these parts before. She inputs the names of over 50 bird species that she's seen, uploads photos and geolocates the sighting. Her sighting become bits and bytes stored on the eBird servers. Okay, I know what you're wondering. What does this experience of Asma's have to do with artificial intelligence? It is true that there are thousands of Indians like Asma, most of them amateur bird watchers with other day jobs, who upload photos and sightings regularly. It is perhaps the most popular hobby among those with an interest in nature. But it is also much more than just that. What Asma and other bird watchers like her are doing isn't just any other hobby. In this digital era, bird watchers and naturalists like Asma are all small cogs in the spectrum of artificial intelligence. Sound strange? There are tens of thousands of lists by thousands of birders. No human can decipher them all. So scientists and engineers are using AI and machine learning to sift through these observations and make sense of the enigmatic world of Indian birds. And this is a huge step in conservation because once you understand where the birds are and how many there are, you can go about conserving them, no? From ATS Studio and Microsoft India, this is Paradigm Shift. Stories of innovation shaped by intelligence.
आई एम हर्षा भोगले saying that india is rich in biodiversity is an understatement just look out of the window and you'll see something amazing flying or crawling or growing or buzzing or walking in the shadows so far science has found 48000 species of plants and 96000 species of animals on our shores and there is much more left to be found the big problem however is that this rich biodiversity in india is under a huge threat the international union for conservation of nature is a switzerland based organization that works in the field of nature conservation the iucn as it's called for short maintains the most authoritative and comprehensive list of threatened species in the world and according to the iucn 1212 animal species in india are under threat Out of these, 148 species are endangered, and the rest are classified as vulnerable. The problem doesn't end there. India's naturally occurring forests too are today in continuous decline. This is both in terms of the area that they cover and the quality of the habitat they are able to provide. Over the years, the protection of India's biodiversity and the conservation of nature has been in the hands of a loose coalition of various. governmental agencies academic institutions and a host of ngos and volunteers their efforts have been hamstrung by a severe lack of funding and personnel not to mention the sheer scale of the challenges they have to encounter how can ai help here well it turns out it can make a significant difference since the beginning of time human beings have been looking for discovering and documenting species of plants and animals whether it is in the pursuit of scientific discovery or simply as a hobby people have written about drawn described birds insects flowers fruits trees and so on for ages but today this entire exercise has acquired a whole new scale with digital cameras and smartphones nearly everyone who's interested in nature has turned into a record keeper because all one has to do today is click and upload But the question some researchers and conservationists begin to ask is this can we do something with all this massive data that people are uploading today can we actually use all this data to save our natural wealth somehow at the start of the episode i told you about ebird the app that asma used to document the birds that she spotted ebird was a project started at the cornell lab of ornithology in ithaca new york almost 20 years ago It is essentially an online database of bird observations that cover the whole world and works a little bit like a social network. It's free for everyone to use and users can maintain a profile, log their sightings via pictures or audio recordings. They can also maintain lists of their sightings and use the data on the platform to explore areas near them to find new birds. As of May 2021, the eBird database crossed over a billion observations logged from every corner of the world. In recent years, eBird has been logging over 100 million observations every year. This is massive and bird watchers all over the world have fallen in love with the app. And I think there are two aspects of uh, this the two things that attract bird watchers to this. Uh, one is it helps in personal list keeping. 
This is Ashwin Viswanathan, a research associate at the Nature Conservation Foundation and an avid bird watcher and contributor to eBird India. You don't have to note things down. You don't have to tick birds off in a book. And all of us want to know how many species we've seen where, you know. So it's a, it's a, it's a game played by ourselves in a sense. So, uh, so it helps in that personal record keeping. We can upload our photographs, uh, audio recordings. And uh, it also helps in uh, in generating the sort of knowledge that wasn't possible earlier, this uh, collective knowledge where uh, thousands of people around the country and um, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands around the world um, upload this sort of information and there's some data quality filtering after which you get the sort of uh, knowledge on bird distributions that wasn't possible previously, even from a field guide. Before platforms like eBird became popular, the main source of knowledge for bird watchers were field guides. These were essentially books. There are two major field guides that cover the Indian region. Grimmett, Inskip and Inskip Birds of the Indian Subcontinent and Rasmussen and Anderton's Birds of South Asia. While these books were well-researched and comprehensive, they were still limited in terms of the information that they contained. It's impossible to have knowledge about every part of the country. It's such a, such a huge region. And uh, that sort of knowledge, that sort of dynamic knowledge that is only possible when people from everywhere in the country are continuously participating and continuously uploading knowledge. And that suddenly became possible. But that's not all. While eBird started as a crowdsourced database, it soon became clear to the developers that this massive trove of data could be analyzed with the help of computational methods, including artificial intelligence, and this in turn could help in conservation. How? They felt that if they analyzed the data, they could develop a richer understanding of bird species, their habitats and patterns. That understanding could then help researchers locate their problems and start finding solutions. They could guide conservation policy. Well, I think that was always part of the vision was that, you know, if we got um, people who went birding and were, you know, observing biodiversity to give us their data, we would be able to use it to monitor that biodiversity, monitor those species. And it took a while to get off the ground. This is Tom Auer a GIS developer at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology that runs eBird. But at some point, the scale started to, you know, reach a point at which we knew we had enough information uh, to turn it into useful and usable products. It's really kind of a, always part of the core vision was to, you know, be able to create information about where birds are, how often they occur in places, uh, how many there are, and why they are where they are. Like I told you before, eBird has now grown to become perhaps the biggest biodiversity database in the world. All of its data is made available on an open source basis and is available through the Global Biodiversity Information System and other such networks. In fact, around half of all the data in the GBIF now comes from eBird. How did eBird deal with all the data that was being uploaded though? Because not everyone who's into bird watching is scientifically trained to get the details of the birds right. There's this whole observation process, right? People go out and look for birds and they don't always do it perfectly for a variety of reasons. It either may be about the birds or the weather or their own skill level. Um, and so we needed to deal with all this noise and machine learning uh, gave us a great way to work through all that noise uh, by, by sampling the data, um, by doing these sort of things. Really, we could develop confidence in our um, estimates, um, and at the core of that is machine learning—is doing, you know, doing these sorts of um, 
you know, regression analyses thousands, hundreds of thousands of times um, gave us the power to, to, you know, get that insight into the data. There's another project called Merlin, which is an offshoot of eBird. Merlin is a project of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology that uses the data collected and analyzed from eBird to provide a handy smartphone app for both iPhone and Android. This app acts as a guide for birders of every level of expertise. Merlin asks the questions that an expert birder would ask. Where did you see the bird? When did you see the bird? What size was the bird? What were its main colors? And so on. This helps you identify the bird that you spotted. Things get a bit more magical when we come to the headline feature of Merlin. Photo ID. This is where artificial intelligence comes to the fore. Based on the computer vision models developed by researchers at Caltech and Cornell Tech, the app uses the photograph of a bird that you have snapped to identify the bird. An important thing for us, for our mobile app, for, for Merlin, is a lot of people are, you know, traveling to interesting places. They're going kind of off the beaten path. Um, they're in, in areas where they don't have good cell reception. So it's really important that this worked offline. And so basically, uh, we decided, you know, we're going to build a an offline capable version of photo ID that, you know, we could package with Merlin. This is Drew Weber, the Merlin project coordinator at the Corner Lab. Drew spends his time coordinating the Merlin Bird ID project. Apart from the photo ID feature, Merlin also has something known as sound ID. Although this is not available in India yet, this is a feature that allows users to record and upload a bird call that they have heard. Once the audio clip is uploaded, the algorithm identifies the bird species. It's something that we've, it's kind of like, for us, it feels like the kind of like the holy grail of um, computer vision for birding. Um, it's something that like, you know, seven, seven, eight years ago, we were like, oh man, could we do this? How Sound ID works is that you use your phone to record the sound of a bird. Merlin converts this audio recording into an image called a spectrogram. The spectrogram plots sound frequencies that appear in the recording as a function of time. This spectrogram image is then fed into a modern computer vision model called a deep convolutional neural network. What we've basically done is we have pulled in a bunch of experts in sound ID and sound identification. And then they work through each of the files um, that we've selected for the data set and draw a box around each of the vocalizing birds and identify them. Um, so, you know, if you have like three or four birds that are singing over a, the course of 30 seconds or something like that, there might be 30 or 40 different boxes that are all identified to species um, in that file. And we basically, over the past two years now, generated um, close to 800,000 of these boxes um, for over a thousand species. I know it sounds ironic that a computer vision model is being used to identify sounds, but that is precisely what is happening here. The sound is reduced to a visual representation of its waveforms. Advanced computer vision models can then identify the species of bird that you're listening to. They do this based on a model that has been trained using hundreds of hours of data and annotations from human experts. Now, it's not like this technology is far away, useful only in America. India has used eBird data too. You know, so what's one of the wonderful parts about eBird is that we make the raw data, the eBird data publicly available so that um, anybody who wants to use it, especially partners and contributors like um, those in India, 
can download and access the data, the data their, their community is submitting and do their own analyses. That is Tom again. India actually used eBird's data for conservation. It used it to prepare India's first comprehensive report on birds. The report, titled State of Indian Birds, was released in 2020 and documented the distribution, range, trends and conservation status for bird species that regularly occur in India. The report had the status of 867 bird species all over India. Needless to say, that the picture it paints is a bleak one. Of the 146 species for which long-term data was available, 80% have shown a declining trend. The decline is stronger for 50% of the species. But information is power. And now that we know where the problem lies, perhaps we can do more to slow down this rapid decline. I think you're starting to see the kind of magical role AI can play in conservation, right? There's more actually. Back in the US, there's another non-profit organization called Wild Me, which is doing its bit to conserve snow leopards and whale sharks. And it too uses AI. What makes an animal endangered? This is Jason Holmberg, the founder of Wild Me. In fact, Wild Me is also a Microsoft AI for Earth grantee. So when something, you know, when an animal shows up on the IUCN red list or when an animal is listed by a particular host country as endangered, we have to ask the question, you know, well, how do, how do we get to that estimate? And there's a number of ways you can do that. You can do that via genetics. You can do that via aerial surveys. And another very common and statistically sound technique for estimating the size of an animal population is something called marker capture. He's talking about a system known as mark recapture. Until recently, whenever an animal population needed to be tracked, ecologists would capture a portion of the population of that animal, mark it with a tag of some sort, and then release them. Then at a later point, similarly, another random portion of the population would be captured and marked. By studying the proportion of that second portion that is marked, they would arrive at an estimation of the population of that animal. Now, one of the interesting things about this old world approach, it was very much limited by the amount of time researchers could spend in the field, which was often very limited. They're, you know, they have teaching responsibilities, they're very short on funding, etc. Jason and his team thought that computer vision would be a much better way to go about doing this. But there was a problem. While there were many amazing computer vision algorithms coming out of academia, they were mostly complicated and involved running command line code, which a field biologist might not be able to do. So one of the first things we did is say, okay, well, if we're going to have all this cloud-based infrastructure for people to pool data, can we also run computer vision and then later machine learning in the cloud? So to field biologist to run an AI-based algorithm is just saying, click, start, match, right? They don't need to know Python. They don't need to know the command line. Based on this idea, the team at WildMe has developed and deployed several computer vision algorithms that are tailored to detect several different species around the world. From whale sharks to manta rays to African wild dogs, there are broadly two tasks that these algorithms do. The first is detection, which is to find one or more animals in a particular photograph. This photograph may be acquired through camera traps or captured by field biologists or citizen scientists and so on. For whale sharks, which are solitary, it's very easy. There's one big whale shark in the photograph. For African wild dogs, which run in packs, there's you know, it's a very challenging task because you might have 10 dogs and they're lying in a pile and there's, you know, tails sticking up and heads sticking up everywhere. And that's a very challenging machine learning problem. 
So like Jason says, the next task for the algorithm is to identify which individual animal is using the natural patterning on these animals. So African wild dogs have this brown, tan, black, white collage pattern all over them. And um, uh, for example, dolphins have unique fin shapes per individual. Whales can have both unique coloration on the fluke or the tail, as well as a unique sort of jaggedy edge. The different computer vision techniques we have can look for visual correspondence of texture change. They can reuse old sound wave mapping algorithms that were used for like uh, audio recognition, sound wave matching. The identification part is handled by a combination of old school computer vision algorithms and new deep learning algorithms known as triplet loss networks. These are trained on multiple photographs of individual animals. In simple terms, a triplet loss network is an AI that is trained based on an anchor input and then a matching input called a positive and a non-matching input called a negative. Based on these, the algorithm learns to distinguish individual animals without any human supervision. And those are very, I don't know, those are, those are very mysterious in how they can work. It's, you know, it's an inscrutable application and yet highly accurate and exceeding state-of-the-art um, you know, for, for some of the old world AI or computer vision algorithms that didn't use AI. Another element of WildMe's AI suite uses something called an intelligent agent. These intelligent agents use the natural language processing technologies that we talked about in episode two to scour through YouTube to find sightings of a particular species. And the purpose of this intelligent agent in Azure was to go up to YouTube and say, okay, in the past 24 hours in English, French, German, uh, and Chinese and Spanish, look for any video that's tagged, titled, or described with the localized word for whale shark. Okay. And then it would run, it would, it would, if it found that keyword, it would then take the title, the tags, and the description, munge them into one blob of text, use um, Microsoft's machine translation to translate it all to a standardized English. And then it would run a binary machine learning predictor whose job was to determine does this describe a whale shark in the wild? All of these algorithms that I've talked about are available to organizations and field biologists who wish to work with WildMe and are powered by Microsoft's Azure Cloud. In fact, WildMe's algorithms are used all over the world, including by organizations studying the population dynamics of leopards in the Jhalana Forest Reserve in Rajasthan and the population of whale sharks off the coast of Gujarat. Fascinating, no? Before I end today's episode, I want all of us to zoom out from the species that we see with our naked eyes to the great big eye in the sky, satellites. For many years now, satellite imagery has been used to understand forest cover and land use changes. In fact, Microsoft has developed code and assembled data sets that can be deployed to study these images and has also made them available open source for many years. And it is this innovation that struck a team from Atri as tremendously useful in India. The Northeast region of India is a global hotspot of biodiversity and home to some of the rarest flora and fauna in the world, from the hulok gibbon to the fair's leaf monkey. But the forests in this region are so dense and spread across rugged and forbidding terrain 
that collecting data manually is an extremely challenging exercise here. This is where the team at Atree comes into the picture. The starting point for their project was the satellite imagery that they obtained from a company known as PlanetScope. PlanetScope has a constellation of 120 satellites orbiting the Earth, and these satellites are collecting satellite imagery of the Earth's entire landmass. The PlanetScope sensors capture imagery covering 200 million square kilometers every single day. So PlanetScope provided the team at Atree with satellite imagery of the northeast of India at 3 meter resolution. This means that a single pixel of the image corresponds to an area of 3 square meters on the ground. It is an incredibly detailed image and such incredibly detailed imagery translates to a massive amount of data. Then came the question of cleaning and analyzing this data. So with the satellite data from PlanetScope and powered by Azure Cloud, the team at Atree trained a computer vision AI algorithm that could identify urban and rural areas, forest cover, riverbeds and other water bodies. This was phase one. In the second phase, they trained this algorithm to identify the specific species of vegetation in the forest areas to map the biodiversity. This data was then validated by field researchers who went out to small segments of the forest areas to manually collect data about the vegetation. Believe it or not, over the last half hour, I've barely scratched the surface of what AI can do in the world of conservation. But the stories you've heard today, from eBirds to Wild Me and a tree, should give you a glimpse of the potential that these technologies hold in overcoming some of the hardest challenges in the world of nature conservation. Old methods like mark recapture and pug mark censuses are being supplemented and in some cases replaced by AI-powered approaches that are far more powerful and capable. Petabytes of satellite imagery can be stored and analyzed with the sheer power of Azure Cloud to understand the nature of land use and of forest cover. In other words, severe constraints of personnel, of funding and reach are being overcome substantially using the power of AI. The greatest challenge for conservation is to get a better understanding of the world around us, including its various species. What the world has learned about them in recent years with the help of citizen science and artificial intelligence far exceeds what was known to humankind even just a few decades ago. And this trend is only picking up pace as we speak. With greater knowledge comes greater understanding. And with greater understanding, we will hopefully have greater responsibility towards issues of conservation and development. Don't you agree? I'm Harsha Bhogle and you've been listening to Paradigm Shift, a podcast produced by Microsoft India in association with ATS Studio. Gaurav Vaz is our executive producer and Archana Nathan is our producer. This podcast was made possible by the amazing team at Microsoft India, including Charu Sharma, Rohini Srivatsa, Rajat Agarwal, Sriram Parthasarthi and Soman Napalakanda. Charu and Sri helped structure and shape the podcast with their thoughtful feedback and helping us connect the various dots. This episode was researched and written by Vinay Arvind. Vinay has also conducted all the interviews you heard. 
The title track, sound design and background score for this podcast was created by Nikhil Rao and Abhijit Nath. All clips and voices used in this podcast are owned by the original creators and we have provided links to the sources in our show notes. To read full transcripts of our episodes and additional information about the podcast, follow the link in our show notes.